be looking at uh, what's the second to last on our series, Overflowing Joy. Um, and uh, we're going to be looking at the subject of rejoicing from Philippians 4. There we go, verses 1 to 9. So just as the mums and dads come back, if you've got a Bible or you've got a, a, a pad or a phone, you just want to look at I'd like you to look at these verses. I'm going to actually start by reading these verses today. I often don't, often chat a bit, but this is a magnificent little passage and it brings to a sort of um, climax, really, uh, in many ways, what Paul's been dealing with in this short letter we've been looking at. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Ah, <clears throat> oh, can I have my water bottle there? It's under the chair. Thanks. Sorry. Hoarseness. <laughs> Gives mums and dads another minute to get back. <laughs> it's not Coca-Cola. A new variety, transparent Coca-Cola. Have you not seen it yet? Uh, Right. (laughs) Okay, verse 1, Philippians 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in in this way, dear friends, in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Odia and I plead with Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable... If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. It's a great passage of scripture and it brings, as I say, to something of a a climax or a bringing together of a theme that's throughout this whole book, which is joy. Paul often refers to joy, and he's clearly in a place of joy himself, which, as you know, if you've been coming to this mini-series, is surprising. He's actually in prison. He's been probably in a process of under custody in prison for maybe up to two years. He's been betrayed. He's been misunderstood. He's been physically beaten about. He's actually gone through a shipwreck, and he's now 24-7 chained to a a Roman guards. Uh, probably some degree of freedom to have friends visit and bring food parcels and things, but it's pretty restricting and pretty frustrating. And yet, the whole letter is full of joy, and he exhorts them, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Now, we've got to get something really clear. Rejoice means be filled with joy. Be filled with joy always. And again, I say, be filled with joy. We've got to get something very, very clear. Christian joy is real, 
It's experiential. It's something you experience. It will touch your heart. But it is not primarily related to your circumstances. And, and we just have to understand that. It's, re- it's related to the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Somehow we've got to get clear in our minds. How is it that you can rejoice or be filled with joy when you've got difficult circumstances, when you're in prison with a chain chafing your wrist, when you wish you could be traveling and meeting the people in Philippi or Spain, or when you just want to get out and get around the churches? And how can you still be joyful? Well, it's rejoice in the Lord. It's not rejoicing in your trouble or your suffering. And, and, and reality comes through, as I think I pointed out last time I preached on this, there's a point in here where he refers to a dear friend who nearly died of an illness who hasn't. And he said, that would have been sorrow upon sorrow to me. Paul is not unreal. He said, well, if he died, I'd still been happy. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about unreality. We're talking about something that is not dampened, I guess, by the difficulties and the sufferings. But it's not like rejoicing in the sufferings. I am so glad I'm not well. I'm so glad something awful happened to me. We're not talking nonsense. It's something more profound than that. There's a joy which is rooted essentially in two things. One, who you are in Christ. Knowing and believing what it is to be a real Christian. So there's a doctrinal element, if you like, but don't treat that as a fussy, fuddy sort of intellectual. It's knowing the truth about who you are in Christ as a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. And the second element is a supernatural one. The supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit in you as a Christian, whatever your external circumstances are. And Christian joy is not just a psychological thing. It has got a supernatural dimension. Our joy comes with the presence of God's Spirit in us. So Romans 14, 17 says this, The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom of God is about the Holy Spirit. Another thing the Bible tells us in Galatians is that one part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So the Holy Spirit brings joy. Actually, God has a lot to say about joy. Joy comes with him. You don't often think of Jesus. You should do, really, but we don't often think of the joy element of Jesus. Obviously, he was a man of sorrows, died and bore our sins. But actually, in himself, he was full of joy. He says in the Bible, he's anointed with the oil of joy above others. Because he was totally secure in his relationship with the Father. He was constantly drawing from it. And there was utter harmony between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And that means joy. So there is deep joy that comes with the Holy Spirit in us. Now if you don't understand it's about who you are in Christ. And the truth and understanding and believing it. Linked to the experiential presence of God in your life. Then a verse, if you don't understand that, a verse like verse 4 can sound odd or strangely legalistic almost. Rejoice in the Lord always, I say. Rejoice! How dare you look miserable? Get that smile on your face now. I'm a happy Christian. No, actually, it's not an impossible command or a ridiculous rule or law. It's get your focus on God. And you'll find, even in a Roman prison, there's a joy that comes. 
Keep filled with the Spirit, which he said to the Ephesians. Go on being filled with the Spirit. And one of the effects of that is that you keep singing and praising. So you can have your back beaten black and blue and bleeding, actually really seriously bleeding, be chained in prison, and you're singing praises to God, which Paul and Silas did. He's an example all the time of what he's talking about when they were arrested, when they first went to Philippi. When they first went there, they had a very odd start. They knew God had called them there. They knew it was a powerful, charismatic experience that took them to Philippi. Vision at night. So God's got us here. And within days, with a very little fruit so far, within days they have been arrested, beaten, and people really beat you then. Their backs are bleeding and bruised, and they're in prison, and they are praising God at midnight. That's how things started at Philippi. And you don't do that because you're a masochist. Because you think, oh yeah, beat me again. No, no, they don't do that. They have got something deep in the Lord. They understand who they are. I'm still on an errand with God. God got us here. Don't quite know how this is going to ha- break out and what's going to happen. And I'm just filled with the Spirit. Well, let's open our mouths and praise the Lord. There's nothing else to do. We're chained in prison. Let's praise him. And somehow out of that, there is a breakthrough. As you know, there's an earthquake. The Philippian jailer gets saved and things begin to turn round. So Christian joy is based on two magnificent things that are above and beyond our circumstances. Our relationship with Jesus, believing the truth of what that means and getting it in our spirits and living it and seeing it's not switched on and off with circumstances. We are always a child of God. We're always secure in his love. And then secondly, it's based on being filled with the Spirit, living in the good of that. And again, you are filled, can go on being filled daily at work, at home, in prison or hospital. You can be filled with the Spirit. And you can know something of the Spirit's joy in your heart. Now, Paul, as I said, demonstrated this. He's not just saying to them, this is a rule, you've got to do it. He's saying, this is how I live, observe what I do, see how I live, and put it into practice. We'll look a little more of that in a moment. One of the commentators I was looking said something interesting, and it tweaked, tweaked something, so I'm going to pass it on. He said, Paul's spirituality is joy, prayer, peace, thanksgiving. Now, spirituality is a word we use today. And as I read that little simple commentary, it stirred something in me about reaching people in our postmodern 21st century UK, where we all live, students, older people, sir, wherever we are, we're engaged in this culture, which we sometimes call a postmodern culture. And people are not primarily looking for intellectual answers. Not to start with, they're often interested, but, but actually they want to know... Have you got something? They feel jaded. They feel broken. There's a lot of brokenness about. There's a lot of dysfunction about. There's a lot of lack of understanding. If they meet people who genuinely have peace, joy, and love in their hearts, who genuinely can thank God even when you think things aren't that great for them, you want to know what they've got in modern Britain. And so actually, this is New Testament spirituality. If we can get it, about the joy of the Lord being our strength, about the peace of God guarding our hearts, so that joy and peace are naturally in us in the context of a tough time at work, in the context, not that we're saying, oh, it's great, but we're able to somehow bring something of joy and peace in the middle of the conflict, people will want to know. New Testament spirituality is utterly contemporary. 
It's not just about ticking a load of concepts or ideas. It's not a philosophy. It's an experience which will be tangible and noticeable in a world full of darkness and confusion. These people are joyful. Now, actually, that happened in the first century. There were worse experiences than so far any of us have had. Many, many Christians, including people who were being written to in the New Testament, died for their faith. Died for their faith. They were often persecuted to the point of death. They went to the, the, the circus, you know, to the arena and were torn with animals and all this sort of thing. And one of the features that impacted the Roman Greek culture of the first century was the joy and peace that was still demonstrated even when people were killed for their faith. We're talking about real martyrs. We're talking about people who love Jesus, who love God, who have no desire to kill anyone, and who only want to bring peace and love, but who are oppressed and attacked by whatever horrible, hideous system gets them, whether it's Roman or any other, but still keep their joy and peace. And that had a huge impact on the first century. And so I'm calling us, myself included, to understand in a much more comfortable, much more easy world, but not comfortable world, but more easy than that, that if we can get this spirituality, if we have joy, if we have peace, if we have love, this is not a duty, this is a a key, a secret, it will be attractive, it is attractional, and it is part of our gospel, that we pray, that we bring thanksgiving, that we bring joy, that we bring peace, and perhaps we won't be able to express much. These poor souls who were martyred were not having great opportunities to go through long conversations with anyone, but their their inner joy was impacting and ultimately fruitful in their culture. So it's a challenging subject. Now, what I want to quickly look at is how do we stay rejoicing? It will be relatively quick, because I think I'm telling you, and I hope you've got it, that the source of our joy is not our circumstances, but sadly... Your circumstances can spoil your joy. You are not automatically rejoicing. You can be, but you're not, and nor am I always. So the source of our joy is clear and can be consistent. But we need to understand, how do we not get robbed of our joy? What are joy destroyers? What, what, how do we stay rejoicing? So that's the, what I want to look at. I want to look very quickly from these very verses at some answers to keeping our joy and staying rejoicing. Here's the first one. Maintain good relationships. Now that really is what comes out of verses 2 and 3. It's very interesting that the problems at Philippi, and there were problems in the church at Philippi, do not seem to have been false teaching or uh, errors, doctrinal errors. Quite often when Paul writes, Galatians, Corinthians and others, it's quite obvious that he's worried about really bad things they're believing and false teachers coming in. That's not a problem. Philippi is not troubled by any of that. But there is a relational problem in the church. And Paul's been touching it several times, powerfully in Philippians 2, if you remember, when he talks about the humility of Christ and the example of Christ. Paul is concerned about relationship breakdowns in the church in Philippi. And it's quite possible that in these verses he gets to the heart of the matter. And he actually names two women who have broken relationships with each other, who have fallen out with each other. I plead with Odia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in 
the Lord. Now, the result of this is that the Philippian church is suffering, and these people are suffering. They're suffering, at the very least, the loss of joy, which I think is evident, but they're probably suffering in terms of not being so fruitful as they once were with the gospel. And Paul gets right to the point in these verses 2 and 3. But I cannot ever resist studying the Bible and enjoying getting ready for talking to you and just noticing some by-the-way stuff as well. So do bear with me, even if we're a little bit overdue over over the time. I'll try not to be too bad. But I just can't resist because it struck me when I was reading this how instructive it is just the way Paul writes in these verses. I've just read you the first verse. Verse 3, yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, this, these points they're going to make are simply a result of common sense reading the Bible, plus a tiny bit of background which any commentary would give you. But they are basically observable by just reading it. So let's listen to this. First of all, these two women were clearly part of Paul's co-worker team, which I think is quite interesting. They are clearly significant people, or they wouldn't be mentioned in this way, and they were clearly part of his co-workers, which is quite interesting. So Paul had a team which clearly did involve women. Clearly, they were mature Christians who of proven value. They had done a lot of good stuff over the years working alongside Paul. But they are now at loggerheads and have fallen out relationally. Wow. Here is a lesson. It doesn't matter how mature you are, how much you're a Christian worker, what fruitful work you've done. If you have a bad relationship situation, it is a serious problem. It is going to limit you. It's going to limit the ministry relationships do matter. They clearly matter to Paul. That's another observation. Here's another one. Paul clearly worked in teams. He is not remotely a one-man ministry man. He doesn't seem to think like that. He talks about these people as working alongside him. And this is the bit where you need a little bit of background, which I don't have myself, but commentators will tell you that the Greek words he uses are very relational equality words. So even to, uh, he says, I ask you, my true companion. It's a gentle, polite request. Not gentle, a polite request. It's not an order. The Greek language does not contain an order command element. These are not those sort of words. So why are you emphasizing that? Because I think we have ridiculous views in the church about authority. Paul is quite relational. He is treating these people as equals, All of them, not just the two women, but Clement and the other man he's asking. He's talking to his mates. It's relational language. It is not a pyramidic structure. It's not a man saying, I'm telling you two women, buck up, sort it out. He's not talking like that. He's saying, plenty of us think he should be. You'd be surprised how many church leaders think that's how you're supposed to behave. But actually, he's saying, I plead with you. My fellow workers, I love you, I know you. Please sort it out. And he's, also, he's no wimp. He's not a, on the back foot, but he's, he's got a right theology. He understands what he's dealing with. He's dealing with his friends. He's dealing with his co-workers. It is relational. It isn't pyramidic. If anything, it's quite flat. 
It's quite a flat structure. He seems to be treating them as equals. He uses phrases like this, my co-workers, we've seen that already, plead with you. I ask my true companions, that's a different translation, uh, contend, those who've contended at my side. So interesting about leadership and about team. Very interesting biblical concept, which you could probably f- trace right through about how Jesus operated as well. Very instructive. And then there's another thing. Look, reconciliation relationally often involves a third party. If you've got a serious problem between two Christians, it is quite hard to sort it out on your own. Try, but it's more important that you get it sorted, so involve other people. Because he tells his friend there, you, uh, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these two women. Basically... Please help them sort it out. It is causing a lot of pain and misery, is implied by what he's saying. And so you often need a third party to resolve a relational dispute. Here's another one. I can't resist. This is a bit longer than the other points. You'll be here, please, there. But it's all important. Did you notice Paul does not blame either of these women? There is no blame. He doesn't even major on what the subject they've fallen out over is. There is no issue of taking sides. There is no issue of blame. Actually, he sees the ruptured relationship as far more important than the petty issue of whatever it was that caused the trouble. I wonder how that makes us feel. Sometimes we get so high and mighty about what we fall out with. But actually, Paul says, I'm not almost bothered what it's about. I want them to be of the same mind. He doesn't say I'm not bothered, Um, that's my implication, but I want you to get the scripture and the tone. This was a real letter written by a real man to real people, and he doesn't get into the detail. He's not into who's right and who's wrong. But he's not on the back foot. And here, this my imagination goes with this one. These letters were written to churches. These letters would have been read to churches. They weren't printed like you've got your Bible and everybody had one. So there came a day when they got a new letter from Paul at Philippi. And Epaphroditus brought it. And Epaphroditus would have got it out and he's going to read it to them. And the whole church is gathered. And as we go through, there's one thing after another. People are stirred by it. And it gets to this verse and it says they're named I plead with Odia and Syntyche to be the same mind. Who can I choose? I've got to be careful. We're reading this letter. I don't know. I'm going to choose safe options because I know it's fine. I plead with Marion and Fran. Suddenly, woof! Suddenly, what do you think these ladies felt like? What do you think they felt like? I bet they blushed. I bet they didn't know where to look. People glanced at them across the room. This is Paul saying, okay, you haven't sorted it. I'm saying, you two, I'm asking you, put it right. And do you know, I I think we just got to get, this is so important for our joy and fruitfulness. And if you have a problem with a fellow brother or sister, please, in the terms of Paul, put it right and get of the same mind. Do it. And if you can't do it on your own, get somebody else involved with you. I'll try and be quicker on the others. How do we stay joyful? Be Christ-centered is the second one. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The New Testament never asks us to contemplate ideas. It always calls us to look at a person, Jesus Christ. 
So the New Testament always draws us back to Jesus. And Paul does. He can't help it. So he actually says, calls them to be of the same mind in the Lord. He says, whose names are in the book of life. Well, we've come across that in Revelation, the Lamb's book of life. So it reminds them you're all one in Jesus. You all know Jesus. You're in his book, the Lamb's book of life. And then there's this little knockout one in verse 5, the Lord is near. What do you make of that? Because he's exhorting them about the relationships. He's exhorting them about keeping their joy. Keep on the front foot with the gospel. The Lord is near. Now that's probably a little double-edged one. It probably does genuinely have a two, they like to play with words like we do, two sides to it. He's reminding them that the Lord is in your company. The Lord is near. When you're huffing and fussing and arguing and muttering at home about this person and that person you don't like and complaining and arguing... Do you realize Jesus hears all that? The Lord is near. It's true. Every word of it. He hears it. But I think there's another side to the, uh, to the comment. The Lord could return at any time. The Lord's coming is near. It's not that he's getting it wrong, and he always oh, wrong because it's 2,000 years later. There's that imminence about Jesus which all Christians should live with that soon I will see Jesus. If he doesn't come back, you will die, as we all will, and you will see Jesus, and then how will you explain your petty, foolish arguments? Well, you don't know how she treated me. It's not going to sound that weighty in front of Jesus. <laughs> she ignored me for weeks. You know, how are you going to say that to Jesus? The Lord is near. You live in the reality of a Christ-centered life. Jesus knows all about your life. He is going to be one day coming back, or you're going to meet him before that through your own death, face to face, and you're going to give an account of your life. So Paul rightly, just one little four-letter, four-word thing, the Lord's near. Remember that, the Lord's near. It's a very timely, remember it, to keep you focused on him and in a way to maintain your joy. It helps you to remember that this world is not your home. That this is not all there is to life. That actually, in the end, God will sort out others. I'm accountable for me. If they have treated you badly, well, Jesus will deal with that. Your, your responsibility is forgive them, not be bitter, and as much as within you lies, maintain good relationships. The Lord is near because you've got to give an account like I am and my account's going to be about John Groves. It's not going to be about you. And yours is going to be about you and not John Groves. And so actually we need to live in the light of eternity and actually that helps us to keep our joy because we keep a perspective. We keep a balance. We understand this is a lot bigger than what we're doing right now and how successful or how well regarded we are or how we're recognized or have we been noticed or all the funny things we get worried about. It's a loads, loads bigger than that. We're servants of the living God and one day we will give account of our service to Jesus. Here's the third bit for helping us to stay rejoicing. Turn your worries into prayers. Verse 6. Now, this is a famous verse, but it's still worth reading again. I'm not going to read it, but it's worth looking at again. Turn your worries into prayers. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Now, what you need to know, and you would know, because we all know it, anxiety is a terrible joy killer. 
Anxiety is an absolute joy killer. It's, it's almost impossible to be joyful and anxious at the same time. I know from many years of trying to do it. I personally have a slight tendency to be over-anxious. I've battled with it all my life. Well, you say, what do you mean? Well, I, I, I think anxiety is basically this. Anxiety tends to be self-centered worry about non-specific things. <laughs> okay? It is self-centered. It's usually about you and what It's about you, your health or your future or your money, and it's often non-specific. So it's just things that might happen or could happen or vaguely might happen. That is quite different to genuine care concern. Genuine care concern would broadly be focused on specific concrete things, and you find something to do about it. So you are concerned or caring or concerned about something coming up and you try and do something to improve the situation. That's legitimate. And actually, you can have legitimate care for other people. And that's good too. Anxiety is this sort of constant, never-resolved, non-specific worry. Now, it doesn't mean it's rubbish. The things we're anxious about are real to us. And anxiety is very hard to deal with by willpower. There are plenty of common sense advices out there. There's plenty of common sense advice about anxiety. Let me give you just a few. Stop worrying. That solves it, doesn't it? That helps. It's always helped me. It's enough. I'll go home now, have your lunch. Stop worrying. That doesn't work, does it? Here's another one. Here's another one. Don't worry. It may never happen. Oh, thanks. And actually, that's common sense. That is true. Don't worry, it may never happen. But it doesn't somehow do it. Does it? <laughs> if you're really worried, it can sometimes help a bit, but not really. Here's another one. All the worrying in the world won't make any difference. Very true, but it hasn't helped me. <laughs> I mean, it depends on your character a bit, but all the worrying in the world won't make any difference. It is genuinely wisdom. It's a common sense wisdom. But somehow anxiety is not solved by that as clearly and cleanly. The answer to anxiety is actually something positive. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You fight anxiety with prayer out of your relationship to God. You apply this verse and you pray about what you're anxious about. Now, what you're anxious about, I might think, is quite unnecessary. And what I get anxious about, you will certainly think is unnecessary. You'll say, one of those that will say, oh, don't worry about that. Oh, it might never happen. How silly that is. That's silly. Well, that isn't silly to me. I'm sorry. So I have to learn to pray about what I'm anxious about and turn my anxiety into prayer. They're like opposing forces. And I begin to replace it with prayer. And the prayer needs to be full-on prayer. Paul uses several words here. You probably noticed that. That is deliberate, I believe. Because he uses the word prayer, first of all, which in the original language is different from the word, as it is in our language, funnily enough, petition or request. They're different words, like they are in English. And so he's actually said prayer is a more... Actually, prayer probably has the idea of worship. It, Martin Lloyd-Jones, my great authority, says it probably has the idea of worship. And actually, better than that, 
It has the idea of coming face to face with God. What a beautiful idea. So actually, when you're anxious with something, first of all, come into the presence of God and get your focus on God and begin to worship him. Begin to praise him. Begin to focus on him. Don't merely rush in with your petition. Try and first of all, with prayer, which is sort of worship and praise, focus on God, come into his presence. But then be specific. Be precise what you're asking for. That's what the words request and petition tell you. Don't be vague. Say, God, I pray that I don't get cancer. I've got a imaginary worry I'm going to get it, or that the plane I'm flying in is going to fall out of the sky. It's no good people telling me, don't be silly. I need an answer. Well, the answer is, may my plane be the safest in the air. May your angels be under the wing. May they get me there and make it a serious prayer. You may feel other people think you're silly, but it's not silly for you. You actually replace fear with faith. You actually come with prayer. Come into the presence of God and bring your petitions and your requests to him with thanksgiving, the third element. That is thanking God for the good things he's done for you. There's no one in this room that hasn't got something to thank God for. You can thank him for your salvation. You can thank him for a whole gamut of spiritual things. But you can also thank him for the health and the life you have. All of us can count our blessings. It's totally possible to do it. So by the time you've praised him, by the time you've thanked him and brought your petitions, your anxiety is shriveling like a weed under a a weed killer. And that is it. You have to fight it with something different, not just common sense and willpower, not just, oh, cheer up, it will never happen. No, no. It's much more profound than that. This is the way to guard your joy. Fourthly, Seek the pre- There's only 55 of these. No, there's not. Uh, <laughs> seek the presence of God. I'm not telling you how many there is, because I know you. You'll start counting them down. Seek the presence. You never know how long each point is, nor do I. Uh, <laughs> seek the presence of God. Now, that sounds quite grand, but it's tied to a very simple little thing. If you look in verse 7, he talks about, and the peace of God which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. When you look at the end of verse 9, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. So one moment he's talking about the peace of God, and the next he talks about the God of peace. Ha ha! Because you need to know that the peace of God doesn't come as a mental trick of positive thinking. It's the God of peace that will meet you. When you pray, the peace of God comes not because you've suddenly got a mental way of handling, a mindful way of handling life. It comes because God himself will come and bring his peace. The God of peace will be with you. Wow, that's what I want. The God of peace will be with you. And he is peace. God's peace in many ways. I mean, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the Spirit of Holy Spirit brings peace. It's another bit of his fruit. And, and all this. God is characterized by peace. God has made peace with us through the blood of Jesus, the whole thing. And of course, that is fundamental to it, what I've just said, that we now have peace with God through our faith in Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, through his blood. That's why this is doctrinal again. You stand on the peace of God that you have fundamentally, the peace you have with God. And then after that, you can receive the spirit of peace, So it's peace, peace, peace all the way. You're at peace with God, though once you were his enemy, once you were disconnected from him, once you were in chaos, and you may feel you are this morning. You can have peace with God this morning 
through Jesus Christ. It comes through putting faith in Jesus. It comes, the blood of Jesus brings our peace. Through his cross, we have peace with God. And if you put faith in Jesus, you can boldly come into his, the presence of God and call him Father. He's your Abba Father, and the God of peace is with you. Why is the God of peace with you? Not because you're someone special, but because you're standing on the blood of Jesus. You're standing on the cross. And all the problems you had with God, all your sin and foolishness and, and blindness has been removed. And you now are at peace with God, and so the God of peace can be with you. Isn't that magnificent? No wonder you get joyful, even if it's a bit uncomfortable and things aren't going well, even if you're in prison with a few bruises on your back, once you get that into your spirit, even your spirit would lift. And mine. I'm not saying you're worse than me. <laughs> you know, sometimes you look at Paul and think he must have been a superhero. I don't think they were superheroes. I just think they got this. They were strong characters, perhaps, but they got something. Hallelujah. Let's go on quickly. Think about the right things to keep, stay rejoicing. Verse 8. Now, this is a really interesting verse where Paul says, uh, you know, whatever is right, true, lovely, admirable, praiseworthy, think on these things. The first thing he mentions, this is the important bit to get. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble. The first one he mentions is whatever is true. And he's talking about something to help you keep joy and peace in your life. Now, Mr. Lightfoot, who probably doesn't mean anything to you, but he's an ancient but very scholarly commentator, and I couldn't say it, but he can say it, says, speaking in general terms, these words may be said to be arranged in a descending scale. In other words, the most important one is true. The most important thing you can do to stay joyful is keep your focus on what is true. Think about what's true. Now, some of you have been doing Freedom in Christ, so this very neatly ties in with that, but it's not as much bigger than that, but Nevertheless, that's in harmony with it. We need to focus on truth. If we're going to stay joyful and peaceful, then think about what's true. Don't spend your time and energy thinking about lies, thinking about falsehoods. Don't meditate on the devil's lies. That is a road to misery. The road to joy is to think of God's truth. Now, we're not talking, we're talking about God's truth primarily. Think about it. Give attention to it. Meditate on it. And as you think about the truth, you will navigate through your life. Even if it seems to have lots of dangerous bumps and, and, and troubles. F.B. Meyer tells a story of a ship that was threading its way through inshore islands quite carefully. And a woman on board was getting rather nervous. So she asked the captain of the ship if he knew where all the rocks and the shoals were. He replied, no, madam. But I know where the deep water is. Just let that sink in. No, madam, but I know where the deep water is. He only needed to know where the deep water is. He didn't know where all the rocks were. He didn't know where all the sandbanks were. He didn't know where, where, where the hidden wrecks were. But he knew where the deep water was, and he was keeping to the deep water. And in a way, you need to know where the deep water of God's truth is and keep to it. 
don't go off down a side alley. I wonder if I could get away with this. I wonder if there's a rock over here. Don't look for rocks. Keep to the deep water. Keep to the deep water of God's truth. Keep your focus on God's truth. That will help your joy. Actually, this sort of list is where Paul is engaging with the culture. The Greek culture saw that the high-minded people would think about, say, we need to think of things that are noble and are beautiful and lovely. And actually, I don't want to mock that. That's good. But how do you define it is the problem. And Paul takes an engagement with the culture and then changes it into a Christian context. Basically, what he's saying is it is good to think of things that are noble and right and lovely, but you need to do them in the context of your walk with God and your fellowship with him. So how quite does that work? Well, it's not as difficult as it sounds. It's actually good for you to have a life. (laughs) It's good for you to enjoy good things. It is good for you to enjoy good art and music and have a nice meal out if you get the opportunity. Go for lovely walks in the country. Enjoy the creation around you. Enjoy a film or any sort of event. These things are not bad at all. They're good if they can be enjoyed in the light of your relationship with Jesus. Let me just try and make it really simple. It's actually good to look for noble, right and lovely things in culture and in the world, but you need to do it with the eye of a Christian who is a friend of Jesus, with Jesus as your companion. I like to put it like this. You ought to talk to Jesus about it. Can you praise Jesus for that art object you're looking at? Can you praise Jesus for that evening you've had out at that concert, for that beautiful sight or sunset, for that experience, that film? I don't mean in a pernickety doctrinal tick-a-box way. I'm not talking like that at all. Can you genuinely say, that was a lovely evening, Jesus. Thank you for letting me have the money and the time to enjoy it. Can you do that? If you can say yes, then enjoy it and think about it. If you have to say, no, I can't do that, then I think you shouldn't give it any more time or attention. If you look at this film and it's full of sordid stuff and sex and violence and stuff to an X degree and you, you actually feel slightly uncomfortable, and if you thought of saying, Jesus, are you enjoying this film? You'd know what he'd say. Then I sus- suspect you should probably not give it much thinking time, should you? So you do bring it through the prism of your walk with Jesus, but we're meant to enjoy life. It says in Timothy, this, Paul writes in Timothy, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So provided we keep a God focus, we're meant to enjoy all sorts of things, and that keeps you a joyful person, enjoying it in the balance of your walk with Jesus. The last one, I'm going to be very quick, hardly spend any time because I've touched it already. This is the last one. Imitate godly people because that's what Paul says he says in verse 9 just look at me and do what I do and I think this is the last thing and it's worth just noticing it Paul teaches leads disciples by principles and by example not by rules and threats that's interesting he doesn't use rules and threats much a very little bit a little occasional challenge to a mess of Corinthians but mostly he leads by just sharing how he lives and encouraging them to do the same. Sharing what he believes and rejoices in and letting them do the same. And I would say one of the ways to stay rejoicing is to get alongside mature Christians and notice how they live. 
Those who you know cope with difficulties. I could mention names in this room. People who've come through serious illness and still seem to be in faith and joy. People whose domestic situation is very uncomfortable, whose work is a disaster at one level, and yet they still seem to walk close with the Lord. Notice them and learn from them. And if you want to, just look through Paul. Just read and learn. And it's one of the ways to learn how to walk in joy. So to sum up, Christian joy doesn't come from our circumstances. It comes from our relationship with Jesus and who we are in Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Unfortunately, we can be robbed of our joy. So to stay rejoicing, we need to maintain good relationships. Very important. Be Christ-centered. Turn worrying into praying. Seek the presence of God. Think about the right things in a Christ-centered way and imitate godly people who seem to be a bit further down the track than we are. Amen? Let's have the musicians up as we finish. I hope you got something out of that, but I'm also looking for God to meet us this morning out of the worship and the word. And I know the children will be back in a minute, but can we hold it for a couple of minutes? Because I'd like to pray for you this morning, even as we worship. So let's stand together uh, as the musicians come back. And while they're getting their their music organized, I'd just like to be praying for you anyway. So let's just stand and let's just have hands open or hearts open. That's the important bit. Because I think as I've been talking this morning, some of you would be very much able to tell me what's robbed you of your joy. You'd know. Maybe something I said or maybe just your own common sense. You think, well, I know that has really wrecked. I'm not enjoying my Christianity at the moment. I'm not enjoying my walk with God. I'm not enjoying my life much. If you really know what's robbing you of your joy, I want to say just put your hand up. Everybody keep your eyes closed. Put your hand up right now. If you think, I do not feel very joyful. That's not the question I'm primarily asking. I'm asking, do you know what's robbing you? Because I'm going to ask God to give you some strategy and help. So put your hand up if you think, I know. If I'm honest, I know what robs me of my joy. I know. I know what the issues are. I I don't need to take long. That's good. That's good. Lord, I pray for every dear saint who's being honest before you and saying, look, I know the issue for me. And I ask you now, Father, in the name of Jesus, just do keep your hand up while I pray. I ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you will meet everyone who's got their hand up, who's saying, Lord, help me. It may be some situation that I don't understand. I, John Groves, but you understand it, Lord, and you know their need. And I pray you will help them. I pray, Lord, you will break through in their lives. I pray they will have a strategy to answer it. Even from now, they'll think, I know what I've got to do, and I'm going to do it. I pray, Lord, even if it's only a more robust prayer, I pray you will get to grips with their prayer life. They will begin to seriously wrestle with you in prayer about it. I pray, Lord, you will just show them what to do. If it's relational, help them to put it right as much as they can. I ask you, Lord, just to lift this from their lives. Break through with your joy. Take away this cloud in Jesus' name.